I am sitting here with Dr. Dwayne Edwards of sneaker culture fame. That's the only way I can <laughs> I can think to describe it. Now, of course, you are more than what you do mm-hmm. or what people might associate you with. But you have done some incredible things in the culture. So let's talk a little bit about I just heard you speak. Let's talk about what you learned from designing shoes for Shaquille O'Neal, because that's a book. That's a big foot. <laughs> Well, I mean, like I said, when, you know, when I sat on stage, when doing product early, he was at school, right? So it's not like today where they have NIL deals. We were designing for LSU mm-hmm. as a whole school, but specifically for Shaq, I mean, because he was and still is abnormally <laughs> a different Large. size than everybody else. <laughs> it was actually a different exercise in, in knowledge because you have this foot that's 22 size 22, then you start to understand the complications that could occur, you mm-hmm. know, with a foot that large. I mean, your bones are longer, they're skinny, but they're still longer, tendons are longer. So that was actually a chance for me to understand the the physiology of athletes that large, the biomechanics of the way feet move that jeopardizes uh, or puts them in possible jeopardy of injury mm-hmm. based on size. So footwear can only do so much. You know, in that equation, but it, at least I had to understand, you know, the physiology around it and use that data to make the best decisions to create product for athletes that large. So we are talking about a product that is designed normally for safety or for mm-hmm. athletes. But today I'm dropping this because we are in our city of Milwaukee celebrating culture by design. Mm-hmm. What you have done has created an entire street culture when did you know that these ideas in your brain was shifting the way people saw themselves? I mean, because when you get dressed, you want to look <laughs> fly. And when you're talking about the hip hop culture, right. you cannot talk about culture like the, without talking about the fashion of it all. Of course. Well, we created all of it. I mean, without us, there mm-hmm. is no culture. Without us, there is no style. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the the difference is I didn't set out to do anything. I was just living who I was mm-hmm. and I was resonating with the people that I'm naturally connected to and around and influenced by. And I, and I think so. That's kind of really the difference is I didn't have to try mm-hmm. to do anything. I was just doing the things that I felt were culturally relevant based on the people that influenced me, which are the ones that I saw every single day. Yeah. And, and I think that's probably the difference from when I was doing that in the in the early 90s and 2000s, we didn't have to search for clarity of, okay, what style is this and what style is that? We were creating it based on how we were living. Yeah. And so I would say that's probably the natural difference is that we didn't have to try. We didn't have to make it up. Because it didn't exist, we were creating what it is. Mm-hmm. And so it was more naturally produced that way. Now, you gave the room a little history, too, which I always love when I hear speakers merge like the entertainment with the education, the Mm -hmm. entertainment. And you gave facts that were similar to like we know Henrietta Lacks's genetics were used. Mm. This black Mm. woman was Mm. used to create all of this medicine and healing that we still use today Mm -hmm. without her permission, without her family's permission. But her genetic cells are in the DNA 
of America. Mm -hmm. And that's how I look at what you've done. We have people like April Walker with Walker Wear. We have Misa Hilson with No Lil' Kim and the Boob Out. We have Carl Kanai and all these great black people who have created the culture. And then we have you. (laughs) And you live within this space where at a certain point, the only people at the very top of these brands or these designers didn't look like us. Mm -hmm. But here you come with your brilliant brain and you really created a culture that will be here long after both of us when it comes to the Jordan brand. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something that I can't see this ever not being a thing. True. I can see that. Yeah. Right. And what does it feel like to be history in the making like right now you're still doing this with educating young kids on how to make their own shoes and create their own brands what does that feel or like? even work at jordan yes so, yes you know i, I never um look at it through those lens mm-hmm. I, I don't look at it through the lens of past tense mm-hmm. right um because i think when you start to look at things backwards you stop moving forward mm-hmm. and so i never reflect you know, and I don't think about what I'm doing through that lens. I just think about that I need to do better than what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably been, probably been the thing that kept me sharp and keeps me sharp is that I'm, I'm trying to be better than I was. And if I'm constantly on that quest to be better than I was and I put that on the other people that come our way, they'll start to develop a certain mentality of being a leader instead of a follower. Yes. Our culture has more followers than leaders today. When you talked about the amazing April Walker and Carl Kanai, T.J. Walker, mm-hmm. Maurice Malone, mm-hmm. like when you talk about these folks who in the in the '90s, late '80s, early '90s created what we see now today is street culture, and they're still here. Yes, like they're still doing their thing, getting down. It's just the younger generation doesn't know their history, mm-hmm. and so they wouldn't know who April was. They wouldn't know who Carl was until you see an ad and you see, oh, Biggie, what, what, what is that Biggie wearing? Mm-hmm. What, what is that? What is that Pac wearing? You know, one of my favorite situations was when LL Cool J got tapped to do a Gap oh, yes. commercial, oh, but yeah. he said for us, by us on the low. And had it, uh, had, had, and the had hat it on. on. Yes. yes. How do you brand another brand within the brand that you're attempting to brand unless you understand the culture Absolutely. behind what you're doing? And you know, even if y'all gonna pay me this money, I'm gonna brand who's really creating the culture. And, and, and that's also being the expert in the room, mm-hmm. right? Knowing that the other folks in the room didn't know what he did until it was done. Too late, yep. Mm-hmm. And so that was probably probably the slickest thing ever in streetwear, broad mainstream culture, because the white folks didn't get it. Mm-hmm. They didn't catch it. All the black folks knew exactly what went down. Exactly. And we were all just looking like, he just Bravo. did that. Yeah, Bravo. he just did that on a low and billions of people saw it. Mm-hmm. Like, we need to do more of those things. We need to do more of those subtle opportunities that create that elevated nod that elevated oh we know right yes where i think sometimes we're we're so concerned with everybody knowing and everybody being aware whereas like no if you focus on the people that need to know yeah then it'll spread organically and that organic spread will still be talked about like that was over 20 years ago and we're still talking about this right absolutely but the things that happen today you talk about for like 15 minutes and then it's gone where because it was contrived, it was cooked up, it was 
not authentic. Right. It, it didn't reach the core audience that you wanted it to, to actually penetrate. The more we can do those things, like that's how culture grows. That's how culture builds. And that's how culture gets elevated. We just don't do enough of those culturally relevant things that only resonate to us. Yeah. And I will be honest. I started off as a rap singer, songwriter, artist, and I was tapped by a former member of the Burrell Advertising Agency Mm. in Chicago. Black Mm. owned. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Burrell. And he said, you know, you're a rapper, but your voice, your voice is what I need for my McDonald's commercial. And that's when the shift happens. Okay. Right. Oh, I can be an artist or I can use my voice, which is really what artists do. Yep. I can use my creativity behind that, which led to a career in radio. There you go. So it's about shifting that mentality. And you talked a lot about that. Don't stifle yourself thinking that you're you have to do one thing that can be a goal, but be flexible. Yeah, you got to be open to it because mm-hmm. sometimes, you know. So sometimes folks be like, well, I need a plan A. I don't want plan B, like having that type of laser focus. There's nothing wrong with having that type of laser focus if you can really get to plan A. Like if you can really, if plan A is really all or nothing, and on some levels, you know, that creates that focus that you need. Because I would say a lot of kids have multiple plan A's, not Mm -hmm. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. They Mm -hmm. got multiple plan A's, Mm -hmm. which means you never get to an A. That's correct. And so I think it's the separation of that focus in helping them harness that focus of having a plan A and B and C, but B and C also helps you get to A. That's correct. And you're going to start at D or F or R and work your way to the alphabet. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we think we're going to start at A and get to A. And you know what's interesting is certain things live and breathe in the culture far beyond their expected impact. So when I say to you, and this is not rehearsed, y'all, Gordon Gartrell. See, you see that? That's what you have become for the black culture. Wow. That's big, though. Right? That's big. Right? Because sometimes we don't think of ourselves the way the culture thinks of us. And if you know what Gordon Gartrell is, then you know you're one of the cool kids. But it is important for me to say that to you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Because you took that sigh and that smile showed me that you understand what that means to all of us. Yeah, you we, are Gordon Gartrell. Wow. Um, that's a big one to hold on to. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge black history. Well, our history is American history, but I'm, I'm a huge sports fan of, of blackness and, and people. And um, I discovered Jackie Robinson when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And I understood his story through a different lens than most where if you're familiar with Jackie, is he wasn't the best baseball player that could have integrated professional sports. So he was the, for, for those who don't know, Jackie Robinson was the first black professional athlete to integrate all professional sports. Right. And the interesting thing about Jackie, though, was that he lettered in four sports at UCLA, and baseball was his worst sport. Oh, wow. And he wasn't even the best quote-unquote, black player at the time that could have been integrated into Major League Baseball. But Branch Rickey, who was the the white owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers at the time, he understood that Jackie had the talent and the temperament. Is both. He had the talent 
and the soft skills needed to succeed. Because if he didn't have that temperament to control his temper, we would have it would have taken us longer because we would have showed up. And as soon as someone called us the N word and did all the things they did to him, bringing black cats to the park and teammates not wanting to shower with him, teammates not wanting to ride a bus him, teammates not wanting to stay in the hotels with him, teammates sticking up for him mm-hmm. when the other teams didn't didn't want to uh, be on the same field as him, we would have just went off. Right. Like we just would have like that Dave Chappelle skit when you go to go to work keeping it real goes wrong. Like we it just would have went all wrong. Mm-hmm. It was in his contract not to retaliate. In his contract. And it damn near killed him. And I think it did kill him because 10 years after he retired from baseball, he died from aneurysm. Yeah. But the temperament opened the door for white folks to say, oh, I guess they can do that. They, they, they being black people can control themselves, can do all these things. That opened the door for us. And as I mentioned today in our talk, it's like once you open the door for us, it's over. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. It's over. Everything that we were and I would say allowed to do, we dominate. Mm-hmm. Everything. Mm-hmm. I always think of, and this might be a little jarring for some people, but I always think of the great equalizer being, I have to totally eliminate you because oh. what you have innately will make me suffer, make my pride, my image of myself, everything I was told that I always can be. You will walk in a room and just and she, by sheer nature, dominate that space Mm -hmm. and this is the only way that i can level the playing field Mm -hmm. by eliminating you but we have so many people who have stuck their their heart on that barrel and said that's what you're going to have to do because i'm going to use this talent i'm going to elevate not only what i'm doing but i'm going to elevate my people i'm going to elevate the images that you have in your mind of what we can be and what we can achieve i'm going to take that risk Mm -hmm. and if that's your approach this is my approach yeah, and you have to be bold enough to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and you've done that. Yeah, yeah, but I do it differently, though. Mm-hmm. I don't do it out loud. Mm-hmm. I do it underground. We move best in silence. Because when we move in silence, they can't see you coming. Mm-hmm. And when, when you move in silence, the foundation that you build, once it becomes above ground, it's too late. Yeah. It's too late for them to try to stop. Imagine... Imagine if Dr. King told nobody there was going to be a walk in, in Selma, Alabama, and they just showed up. Terrifying. The, the white folks just showed up one morning and all these black people were in the streets versus they publicized that they're going to walk. And they were prepared for them when they got there. Mm-hmm. The police was there. Mm-hmm. But imagine if he said nothing. He just only talked to us, said, all right, we're going to plot, we're going to walk, and we're going to plan it this time. We're just going to show up. They won't be ready for us. So there's something to say about silence and preparation through unity that catches them off guard because then it's easier for, easier for us to do things. We need to move more in silence, but through a connective language that ironically was the reason why we were freed from a Harry Tubman yeah. perspective. Yeah. You see how that worked out? Like she moved in silence and we got more done. And they still tried to stop us, right? So I think it's the understanding that we need to understand how to play the game of life chess. When you play the game of life chess, you're always multiple moves, multiple moves ahead of other people. Right. We don't play enough life chess. They play life chess. 
that's why there are always multiple moves ahead of us in certain areas. And they, they put systems and things in place to prevent us from getting to where we need to be. We need to get that knowledge of connectivity first because we can't play life chess without us being all on the same page or as most of us as possible on the same page. So when, when it's time to king me, oh, checkmate, it's over. It's curtains, curtains. And you've seen what he's been able to do by playing life chess. I'd like to thank you for being here with me and sharing all these jewels with the community. And I am speaking to someone who literally has had a hand in building the culture by his own design.